0: Good morning, good morning, and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land, and I'm Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Yes, here live on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. There is so much going on in the world and it's great to know that WBAI is here for us. And please remember to always, if you can, give a little bit of financial support to make sure that this station stays on the air. Thank you so much for your support of this particular program. And let's get into it. Well, um, there are a few things that have been on my mind and then others have clawed their way to the top. And of course, you know that we are in the midst of an issue regarding Roe versus Wade. And just to give you some idea for those of you who woke up this morning not expecting that the overturning of abortion rights in this country would be the highlight of news programs. Well, it is. And that is because elections have consequences. Elections have consequences. And for those who set out or for whatever reason decided back in 2016, we then had uh, Donald Trump as president. And because he was president, he could put forward the names of vetted conservatives who would overturn Roe versus Wade and reverse racial justice issues and a number of other areas in, in gay rights. He wanted those people. He asked the conservatives, the Federalist Society and others to give him a list with only the names of possible Supreme Court justices who would do just that. And he received those names. And those are the people who were put forward And of course, they will make up the part of the majority that based on this draft opinion that has been written supposedly by Justice Alito, that is Justice, what's going to happen in June in the final decisions of this terms, U.S. Supreme Court. The case is Thomas E. Dobbs, state health officer of the Mississippi Department of Health. Those are the petitioners the side of Mississippi, versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Now, because it's a U.S. Supreme Court case, the party losing in the lower court is the petitioner. They're the ones petitioning the court for review on a writ of certiorari. And certiorari is a request that the Supreme Court review the case. And so at this point, we have the petitioners being Mississippi, but the case began as... Jackson Women's Health Organization, suing the state of Mississippi and the state health officer, Thomas Dobbs, because of the laws that had been passed in Mississippi to restrict abortion rights, to limit any access to those rights, no matter if it's rape, incest, or anything else, to the first six weeks. After that, abortion would be illegal. What we have in a draft opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court. So when the U.S. Supreme Court hears an oral argument, you can go on the um, Supreme Court website, supremecourt.gov, and you'll see the calendar of oral arguments. There are only about 200 cases, 250 cases decided per year by the US Supreme Court out of 10,000 requests or writs of petitions for certiorari. So we have over 10,000 from state courts, from federal courts, from even military courts going before the Supreme Court asking for review. The Supreme Court takes a handful of cases, and those cases then receive um, a calendar date to have the oral argument on the issues before the court, not the entire case, but whatever the issues are on appeal. And so the constitutionality of Mississippi's abortion ban was before the court in oral argument. At that time, the conservatives on the court, Justice Alito, um, Clarence Thomas, who rarely speaks, but has been speaking a little bit in the last year or so during the pandemic, um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, um, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh have expressed their disdain with abortion rights. And so when the Supreme Court hears the oral argument, and they're usually in their own separate chambers, but in the same building, their clerks may speak, but The Supreme Court justices don't interact as much as they used to. And during the pandemic, it's been rare for them to be able to physically interact because they've been in their own isolated homes and then holding oral arguments via telephone on a conference call line. However, they do share a draft. A draft of the opinion they propose, and then each justice reads the draft and they put their input, sometimes through their law clerks, but other times through written input, and they decide, you know, well, I want to um, stress more about this issue relative to that one. Um, They could say, well, you know, they're going to decide based on the draft that they're going to uh, write a dissent. The dissenting opinion means they disagree, or a concurrent opinion, meaning they concur or agree with a certain area, but they have some other explanation they want to go into further regarding their own legal reasoning. These draft opinions are then sent around. The Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court decides who would write the draft opinion. And then once that draft opinion is sent around, it's then kind of sculpted into what we have as the final opinion. And then the um, decision is rendered to the rest of us. The most controversial decisions are usually given at the end of the term, and that would be um, in the end of June. However, in this particular instance, the draft opinion was leaked, and so it's thought through political media uh, a source or a print media source out of Washington D.C. that this is a credible draft opinion written by Justice Alito that will overturn Roe versus Wade. And it begins in this way, and I'll just read the first paragraph. And I quote, Abortion presents profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views. Some believe fervently that a human person comes into being at conception and that abortion ends an innocent life. Others feel just as strongly that any regulation of abortion invades a woman's right to control her own body and prevents women from achieving full equality. Still others in the third group think that abortion should be allowed under some, but not all, circumstances. And those within this group hold a variety of views about the particular restrictions that should be imposed. That is, and I've read from, The draft first paragraph of Justice Alito's opinion in the case of Dobbs, in which he then goes on to say that abortion rights should be overruled altogether. That is what is before us today. At the same time, we have another issue that is before us as well. That is the issue of the Russian war on Ukraine. We have issues regarding the economy and the high inflation. We've all gone to the store and found that our dollar does not stretch as far as it used to, and the prices have doubled, in some instance, tripled. We know that we're going back to work, and we're not at ease, some of us. I know I'm not with what we should be doing as far as any type of COVID protocol. I have three different friends who have not interacted personally with me, but they are in the world who have contracted COVID. And I'm not talking about just had a bad cold. I mean, they have been down and out for at least a week and a half. This was not something that they thought they would get. They were vaccinated, they were boosted, and they are sick. Very, very ill. They don't know what the long-term consequences are. I know other people have had COVID in the recent months. They claim it's only Omicron that's going around, but I doubt it. And at this point, they're still dealing with the fogginess, the forgetfulness, and the long-haul COVID symptoms. All of this is going on. During this time period, we had the one-year anniversary of the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. The reason why I bring this all together is because in the midst of all of this, and we're dealing with so much, what happened to the struggle for racial equality? What happened to the struggle for racial justice? I do believe this backlash on critical race theory this, this, These laws that are being put in place and jurisdictions and even state laws, the Florida law and many others are part of a backlash against individual rights of people who had been marginalized previously, women, people of color, and in particular, African Americans. Gay rights are on the chopping block with this don't stay gay laws. Think about what's happening, and it all has a sense of nationalism to it, a sense of nationalism, this grasp onto the patriarchy that this country wants to continue to have, some people want to continue to have. And we must not allow ourselves to be defeated in this war of attrition when it comes down to who still has the breath, the will, the strength outrage to push forward. I give conservatives credit. They think generationally. Too many progressives think about the next election. Too many people of color think about the next family reunion. Too many young people are thinking about the next holiday. Your rights are on the line. One of the reasons why this program, Law of the Land, exists is to be that bridge uh, to, to help you better understand, to help all of us discuss what our rights are so that we are familiar enough to protect them. We will not protect what we do not know. Many times it's been stated before that people wanted to undermine and overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, it's staring us in the face. We've heard we want to go back. Yes, go back. Take America back to the 1940s and 50s. for women, for people of color, when a white man's word was law, where a black person's life could be taken with impunity. And now with the blowback against critical race theory, the blowback is basically we don't want to talk about black rights. We want to put you back in your place. And there's so much going on now, it's very difficult to even fathom what happened to the George Floyd movement. Is it gone? Did we turn our attention away from these rights because we're focused on the war in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine? And because we took our minds away thinking things were fixed, that we're able to lose some ground. I want us to release the sense that we are too vulnerable to fight. I want us to release this idea that we don't have what it takes to be the leaders we need to be. And to understand it's one step at a time. And as we push forward one step, larger steps, smaller steps, we have to make progress. Why is this necessary? Because this is a battle. This is a war. When we get to heaven, everybody can vote. Everyone will be equal and we'll have choices that we would love to make. However, right here on this planet, we've got to fight for what it is that we want. This fight is not new, but I think this Martin Luther King speech that I'm going to play right now will give us some idea that it was Once again, remember, during the 1960s, women's rights, pushing for women's rights, pushing for civil rights, immigrant rights, pushing for the rights of poor people, and then what happened? It was the Vietnam War and the attention of the Vietnam War that took us away from pushing for those rights, and then the focus on the war, the focus on the economy, took us away from focusing on those individual rights, and we went into, once again, another presidency that gave us Supreme Court justices, that gave us another conservative era. I want us to be reminded that history can teach us a lesson. And listen to this. This is a a found interview, found within the last few years, 2018 to be exact. And this found interview is an interview that NBC did of Martin Luther King at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. This is an interview from 1967, 11 months before he was assassinated. This is important for us to understand because so many people believe that the movements forward died with Dr. King. The movements forward had been so decimated by our loss of focus Based on so many things happening, he was giving us a warning in 1967 that we had to maintain our focus and not become distracted. Or else the conservatives and the frustration of those who are tired of waiting for their rights will rise up. Listen to this. This is an interview, an NBC interview with Dr. Martin Luther King and a news correspondent, Sander Van We'll be right back after this.
1: Civil rights King Van Oker, roll 20, sound 36. Dr. King, this church is as good a place as any to go back over your commitment to the civil rights movement when you went out from here into university and then you went to montgomery alabama and started the bus boycotts there what was the philosophy of the civil rights movement as you saw it then more than ten years ago
2: well i would say then the philosophy was that we must go all out to use legal and nonviolent methods to gain full citizenship rights uh, for the Negro people of our country. Of course, uh, that particular struggle and that philosophy centered on breaking down all of the barriers of legal segregation. So I would say that in that period, uh, the basic thrust for the gaining of citizenship rights for Negroes... Uh, was to end uh, the humiliation surrounding the whole system of legal segregation. Dr. King, was there something peculiar to the place where you started
1: and the kind of people you attracted? I mean by that there was a strong attachment on the part of your parishioners in Montgomery to the church. They were older
2: people, weren't they? Yes, I would say by and large they were older people who uh, participated in the boycott because they were the ones using the bus, bus more than anybody else, and uh, Montgomery was a community predominantly church senate uh, so that uh, it was very easy to get to the vast majority of Negroes because they were in some way connected with a church in the community. Was there, in addition to your
1: commitment to the idea of nonviolence? wasn't it also the only thing you could do the white community having the monopoly on violence that if you had tried violence they would have met it with violence
2: it was the only device open to you wasn't it well i'll put it another way that uh, morally i was led to nonviolence because i felt that it was the best moral way to deal with the problem we were seeking to establish a just society And uh, it was my feeling then and it is my feeling now that uh, violence is certainly much more uh, socially destructive and it creates many more social problems than it solves. So I was led to nonviolence for deep moral reasons. Now, there is no doubt about the fact that in our struggle in Montgomery and all over the United States for that matter, nonviolence is also practically sound. Uh, It would just be impractical for the Negro to turn to violence. He has neither the instruments nor the techniques of violence. We are about 10 or 11 percent of the total population of the nation, and I would say we are about one-tenth or one percent of the firepower. So it would just be totally impractical and unwise and unrealistic for the Negro to think of violence. Well, I saw this in the beginning, and... Uh, Montgomery, But this wasn't the basic reason that I uh, turned to nonviolence and that I believed in it as a philosophy. I turned to it because I felt that it was a morally excellent way to deal with the problem of racial injustice in our country.
1: Is there something about nonviolence that made it, and I use that in the past tense, that made it more useful among Southern Negroes than the ghetto Negroes of the North?
2: I wouldn't say there's uh, anything that makes it more useful to uh, southern Negroes. I think it is true that uh, we've had more nonviolent movements in the South because uh, the problem for many years was more crystallized and, in a sense, more visible in the South. Uh, We didn't have many civil rights activities on a massive scale in the North until three or four years ago. So I would say that uh, we just haven't had a chance to experiment on a broad scale with nonviolence in the northern ghetto. I have the feeling that nonviolence is as applicable uh, and workable in the northern ghetto as it is uh, in the south. Now, there's a larger job there. Uh, The frustrations at points are much deeper. The bitterness is deeper. And I think that's because in the South, we can see pockets of progress here and there. We've really made some strides that are very visible. And every Southern Negro knows that he can do things today that he couldn't do four or five years ago. Where in the North, uh, the Negro sees only retrogress. uh, And he doesn't find it as easy to get his vision centered on his target, the target of opposition, as he does in the South. Consequently, this is made for despair and at many points cynicism, a feeling that you can't win. And it simply means that we've got to develop in the North a massive job of organization and mobilizing forces and resources to deal with the problem in the urban ghettos of the North, just as we've done it in the South. In the South, particularly in Alabama, you had
1: visible villains, Jim Clark, Bull Connor, cattle prods, police dogs. But in the North, you don't have those visible villains. Isn't it hard to get your people aroused and directed at
2: something that isn't visible? Well, that's exactly right, and this is what I was saying when I said it's harder to see a target. Uh, In the South, in the nonviolent movement, we were aided always, on the whole, by the brutality of our opponent. Uh, It isn't the same way in the uh, north. The other thing is that you don't have legal segregation uh, in the North as you do in the South. So it is much more difficult to get people to see exactly what you're doing. But uh, it isn't an impossible job. It's uh, it's a hard, it's a tedious job at times to get people to be aroused from their apathetic slumbers. But I still feel that uh, negroes in the north can be motivated just as they were motivated in the south and i think as time goes on with the growing economic deprivation in the negro community it will even be easier because people will come to see that not only is something wrong in general but something is wrong in particular in their own economic and housing situations Well, what is it? I mean, how do you find it? Uh, It's very subtle in the North, is it not? It's subtle, but it's uh, becoming much more visible. Uh, uh, Anybody can see that the schools are more segregated in the North today than they were in 1954 when the Supreme Court rendered its decision declaring segregation unconstitutional. Anybody can look around the ghetto and see that ghetto schools are predominantly segregated and devoid of quality. Anyone who moves through a major ghetto of our country will see the housing conditions. Uh, People don't have to be reminded that they are forced to live in slums in many instances, and they're often rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. And it isn't too hard to see the exploitation that the Negro confronts in the ghetto, where he is forced to pay Uh, more for less and constantly trying to make ends meet, but because of either no job as a result of unemployment or a job that is so uh, economically unprofitable that the person can't make ends meet, and I think they see all of these things, and more and more they are coming to see them, because before the people of the North were looking to the South and they supported the struggles of the South. Now they're coming to see that their problems are very real and they've got organized to grapple with them. Was there something hypocritical about the fact
1: that the South existed and the North could point the finger and then when the Civil Rights Acts were passed in the early 60s, you couldn't point the
2: finger anymore? Well, there was no doubt about the hypocrisy of uh, large segments of the nation on the whole question of, of racial equality. I think the best example is that many of the senators from the North and the West and congressmen generally who voted for civil rights legislation in 64 and even 65 with the voting rights bill refused last year to vote for civil rights legislation because it dealt with an issue applicable to the North, the whole housing question. And uh, this, it seems to me, was the greatest expression of the hypocrisy of uh, many of our citizens and many of the senators and congressmen of the North. But isn't that part of the dilemma now?
1: that people knew that Negroes were being denied, what was guaranteed to them by the Constitution, by the fact that they were citizens of this country, then when they were given those rights, do you feel the white community said, well, we've given them all that we have, now it's up to them?
2: Well, I think the dilemma is much deeper, and I think uh, one during this period of transition has to be very honest with America. And honesty impels me to admit that America has uh, broad racist elements still alive. Racism is still uh, existing in American society, in many areas of the society, North and South. And the other thing is that there has never been a single, solid, determined commitment of large segments of white America on the whole question of racial equality, Uh, I think we have to see that vacillation has always existed, ambivalence has always existed, and this to me is the so-called white backlash. It's merely a new name for an old phenomenon. I see the white backlash as a continuation of the same ambivalence and vacillation of white America and the whole question of racial justice that has existed uh, since the founding of our nation. I think the other thing that uh, we must see at this time is that many of the people who supported us in Selma, in Birmingham, were really outraged about the extremist behavior toward Negroes. But they were not at that moment, and they are not now, committed to genuine equality for Negroes. It's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee an annual income, for instance, to get rid of poverty for Negroes and all poor people. It's much easier to integrate a bus uh, than it is to make genuine integration a reality and quality education a reality in our schools. It's much easier to integrate even a public park than it is to get rid of slums. And I think we are in a new era, a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark, rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm
1: talking about non-segregation as people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America?
2: Well it depends on the level that we are talking here uh, because I think you have to make a distinction between the people who are genuinely and absolutely committed in the white community on the question of of racial equality, and I must confess that I think they are in a very small minority. I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality, and uh, they're always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. Why are they looking for the
1: excuse? What is it about the Negro? I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant, somehow not easily but somehow got around it is it just the
2: fact that negroes are black that's a part of it and growing that grows out of something else you can't thingify anything without depersonalizing that something if you use something as a means to an end at that moment you make it a thing and you depersonalize it the fact is that the Negro was a slave in this country for 244 years. That act, uh, that was uh, a willful thing that was done. The Negro was brought here and changed, treated in very human fashion. And this led to the thingification of the Negro. So he was not looked upon as a person. He was not looked upon as a human being with the same... Uh, status and worth as other human beings, and the other thing is that human beings cannot continue to do wrong without eventually uh, rationalizing that wrong. So slavery was justified morally, biologically, uh, theoretically, scientifically, everything else. And it seems to me that white America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes color a stigma, and uh, that can never be uh, overlooked. So I think these things are absolutely necessary. The other thing is that America freed the slaves in 19—I mean, 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate. And therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, o- they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. Apart from wanting to live better, which all of us want to do,
1: to raise one's children in a better way, to be better,
2: does the Negro in America know what he wants to be? I'm convinced that uh, almost every Negro in this country, other than those who have been so scarred by the system that they've become pathological in the process, and we all have to battle with pathology, nobody really knows what it means uh, to be a Negro unless one can really experience it. And I know we all have to battle with this constant drain of uh, a feeling of nobodiness. But in spite of this, uh, I think the vast majority of Negroes in this country know that they want to be people. They want to be men. They want equality, period. It just boils down to that. And we haven't been able to be people. We haven't been men because of all of the uh, conditions that we've lived with and the syndrome of deprivation surrounding conditions, whether it's in housing, uh, in the economic area, in schools, in the vicious credit practices that we face in the ghetto and all of the problems of closed doors and constant defeats. But uh, in spite of all this, I think we all know, uh, basically, that we want to be men. We want to be persons judged not on the basis of the color of our skin, but on the basis of the content of our character. But you know that many young Negroes
1: don't want anything that smacks of the American white middle class. But do they want something that smacks of whatever is the black middle class, or do they just not want bourgeois values, which, after all, are the basis of this democracy?
2: Well, I think uh, we have to see what they are saying. Uh, I would be the first to agree that uh, integration does not mean giving up everything that has an Afro-American taint, so to speak, a background. I think there are certain unique things within any culture and certain cultural patterns that when you get to the process of amalgamation can really lift the whole culture. And it seems to me that integration at its best is the opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. I think the other thing that we've got to see is that These young people are saying that there must be a revolution of values in our country. As Jimmy Baldwin said on one occasion, what advantage is there in being integrated into a burning house? And I feel that uh, there is a need for a revolution of values in America. Because some of the values that presently exist are certainly out of line with the Uh, values and the idealistic structure uh, that brought our nation into being. Unfortunately, we haven't been true to these ideals, and many of the values of uh, so-called white middle-class society are values. Uh, that need to be reviewed and uh, re-evaluated, and in a real sense they need to be changed. So I think the young people in the Negro community who are raising these questions are raising some very profound questions about our total society. In other words, they are saying that there must be a restructuring of the architecture Uh, of our society, where values are concerned. And with this, I would agree with. So in the quest for integration, I think we can offer our whole nation something, because there are three evils in our nation. It's not only racism, but economic exploitation of poverty would be one, and then militarism. And I think in a sense, and in a very real sense, these three are tied inextricably together, and we aren't going to get rid of one without getting rid of the other. When you stood on the Lincoln Memorial
1: that day in August, 63, and you said, I had a dream, did that dream envision that you could see a war in Asia preventing the federal government doing for the Negroes, preventing the society doing for the Negroes, that which you
2: think had to be done? no i didn't envision that then i must confess that that period was a great period of hope for me and uh, i'm sure for many others all across the nation many of of the negroes who had about lost hope saw a solid decade of progress in the south and uh, in 1954 which was uh, i mean 64 1963, nine years after the Supreme Court's decision to be in the March on Washington, meant a great deal. It was a high moment, a great watershed moment. But I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has, at many points, turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. Uh, I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul such and agonizing moments, and I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead, and some of the old optimism was a little superficial, and now it must be tempered with a solid realism. And I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go and that we are involved in a war on Asian soil uh, which if not checked and stopped can poison the very soul of our nation. Dr. King, even if there had not been a war in Asia, would you
1: still not have had this nightmare insofar as the Negro movement for equality then touched on two things that the white community holds sacred,
2: their children and the property? Oh, I have no doubt that we would have con- encountered great difficulties, great problems of resistance if the war had not uh, been in existence. So that I'm not going to say that all of our problems would be solved if the war in Vietnam is ended. But I do say that the war makes it infinitely more difficult to deal with these problems. Uh, when a nation becomes obsessed with the guns of war, Uh, it loses its social perspective and programs of social uplift suffer. This is just a a fact of history so that we do face many more difficulties uh, as a result of the war. It's much more difficult to really arouse a conscience during a time of war. I noticed the other day, some weeks ago, a Negro was shot down in Chicago and it was a clear case of police brutality that was on page 30 of the paper but on page one at the top was 780 viet khan kill that is something about a war like this that makes people insensitive it dulls the conscience it strengthens the forces of reaction and it brings into being bitterness and hatred and violence and it strengthened the military industrial complex of our country and it's made our job much more difficult, because I think we can go along with some programs, if we didn't have this war on our hands, that would cause people to adjust to new developments, just as they did in the South. They said they'd never ride the bus with us. Blood would flow in the streets. They wouldn't go to school and all of these things. But when people came to see that they had to do it because the law insisted, they finally adjusted. And I think white people all over this country will adjust once the nation makes it clear that in schools, in housing, we've got to learn to live together as brothers. I think the biggest problem now is that we got our gains over the last 12 years at bargain rates, so to speak. It didn't cost the nation anything. In fact, it helped the economic side of the nation to integrate lunch counters and public accommodations. It didn't cost the nation anything uh... to get uh, the right to vote established and now we are confronting issues that cannot be solved without costing the nation billions of dollars now i think this is where we're getting our greatest resistance they may put it on many other things but we can't get rid of slums and poverty without it costing the nation something Hey you've just
0: been listening to An interview from 1967 with Dr. Martin Luther King and NBC News reporter Sander Voniker or Van Oker. I want to make sure that we understand the reason why that I am playing this is to help us to see how the waves come the waves of progress, the waves of backlash, how war then takes our attention away from the programs and away from the the push for the change in our society, and we become numb to it. As he pointed out, Dr. King, we think about the murder of George Floyd and the reaction, the protest, the thought the sense that there must be change. And one of the reasons why I was triggered to do this was because I was part of a racial justice program that was taking place where there were funds that were going to be put forward to have more written work about this, more um, uh, projects to, to help us to better understand racial justice. And then I was told, oh, I'm sorry, because of the war in Ukraine, we're not putting our attention on racial justice anymore. We've now moved to focusing on the war in Ukraine. I want us to think about what has happened in this country when we think about all the promises made and there are a few that are still lingering left over because they were already in the budget, are already on the calendar regarding the changes in racial justice, regarding what we need to do for voting rights, regarding, for example, the George Floyd justice and policing bill. And yes, the Senate finally passed the um, anti-lynching law, the Emmett Till anti-lynching law, of course, Um, The first anti-lynching bill was put forward in the 1800s, 18, not 1980s, the 1800s. And so there wasn't as much fanfare around the Senate finally passing this because it had been upheld by Rand Paul and other white conservatives in the Senate. And I guess it was a crumb from the table of justice handed to us that we would receive um, this um, anti-lynching bill because we have the midterm elections coming up. And I guess this is the crumb they wanted to give us regarding racial justice. But we have to understand that this is an ongoing engagement. And as you've heard Dr. King say, this is a necessary ongoing engagement. A necessary ongoing engagement because there are those people who want to have a better society, but do not want to invest in making it happen. The thingification of people of African descent, the undermining of these um, issues that we know are unjust, the fact that over a thousand civilians are dying at the hands of police every year, the majority of whom are people of color, in particular, African-Americans. And we know that in the midst of all of this, There's a life being taken probably right now, but the thingification allows us to say, yes, but we didn't see it, we don't know it, we can't deal with it. This is undermining the moral compass of this nation. and has done so for quite some time. We're on an installment plan for equality is what Dr. King said, an installment plan for equality. Well, then the next payment is due and we have to have that next payment. As we go forward, we're wrestling with women's rights again, as we did in the nineteen sixties, we continue to do that. We're wrestling with immigrant rights, we're wrestling with racial justice. We have to do more than was done before, and we not we cannot, we cannot be in a position in which we're too tired to act in some way within our sphere of influence. If it, you're not the one who goes out into the streets with the sign, as it's your right to protest under the First Amendment, then maybe it's a letter to the editor. Maybe there is another way you can have your voice heard. But one thing that Dr. King said was that the majority of people were silent. And he's always said, it's the silence of the good people. The silence of the good people that allows so many bad things to happen. On a good note, I'd like to add this. Some of you may or may not know that in this cult- culture, this, this history of America that's been divided, we have the America that is the helper of other nations, the America that opens its, its shores to immigrants, to refugees, the America that wants to help those people who are fighting in Ukraine. And we have the United States, the imperialist being, United States, the crusher of souls. So this United States of America, it's like this dual personality we have as a nation. The United States, the materialistic entity we know as the United States. And then we have the America, almost this nurturing body. And these two, Ideas; these two psyches have existed in one country from its inception. So, the America we know that would crush a thriving Black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in 1921, in the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, in 1921, what was considered the Black Wall Street, was crushed in many ways by the military by mobs of whites intent on destroying a thriving black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, crushed it to the ground, burned it. 35 blocks burned to the ground, hundreds of bodies laid out in the street of dead black people. And not one point of consequence in criminal justice, not $1 to help finance the rebuilding. Even though there were insurance plans, the insurance companies did not pay out. So here we have 100 years later and one year, the plaintiffs in the lawsuit seeking reparations for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre celebrated the judge's ruling on Monday when she allowed their case to move forward after defendants in Tulsa and the government, sought to dismiss the case. Judge Carolyn Wall said the motion to dismiss was granted in part and denied in part, which essentially allows the case to proceed. But it's unclear what will happen next, including details on a potential trial. A trial, finally, in the 1921 Tulsa massacre. We have the United States filled with people, thousands of whom divulged onto This land that was thriving in Tulsa, this black community that said you want to be segregated, fine, we'll be segregated and we'll have our segregated part of Tulsa and we'll live and we'll have businesses and banks and beautiful homes and we'll have doctors and lawyers and teachers and we'll thrive. And that jealousy, that envy of that black thriving neighborhood sent thousands of whites on this bogus threat, of course, that there had been a white woman, this bogus story, this myth that a white woman had been attacked when it found out later that it was untrue. It didn't matter because all that seething rage and hate about having black people actually rise up and have their own businesses and their own communities without white people being in that segregated community. And that comes back to something else that Dr. King has been saying. The integration is one in which As James Baldwin pointed out, are we integrating, running into a burning house? Even if we were to have what we wanted, how long would we have it before people become envious and say the identity of a white American is such that they must always have more than a black American? All these things are happening at the same time. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, the courtroom erupted in cheers and applause at the judge's ruling. There are only three remaining survivors. All of them are over 100 years old, in that courtroom hearing that after 101 years, they will finally have justice. That's one part of America's story. And yet at the same time, we have as this program started out, a US Supreme Court set to undermine the rights of women. All of this is happening in the same country at the same time, and it's a lot to have to handle, but we hope that this program will give you some idea that it will inform and in some way empower and hopefully inspire you not to pull the covers over your head and give up, but to think about what part of the fight do you wanna take on How do you want to act? And in that you are an activist in going forward and pushing forward and trying hard to make the society a better place. What's your vision? Don't be one of those as Dr. King pointed out who decided to be quiet, who sat back and just let things happen for genuine equality requires struggle. It's not a thingification of women. There should be no thingification of immigrants or thingification of African-Americans. We are all people trying to make it in the world. How do we go forward as people to create a better society? This is law that you will support this station, support this program. We put a lot into one show I know today. If you do want to support Law of the Land, please call 212 209-2950, 212-209-2950, 209-2950, 212-209-2950, and pledge whatever you can. Say it's for law of the land. I would really appreciate that. As we look forward and try to figure out, ferret it out, and how we're going to go forward in this, it's going to be together. This backlash against women's rights, this backlash against African-Americans and others, it's going to continue. And so if it's two steps forward and one step back, that two steps we put forward is required, is necessary, or else we're only going backwards. We're in the midst of a nationalist agenda, a nationalist agenda. It's not the first time. It won't be the last time. But that is where we are The same type of nationalist agenda that you see in Russia, we're having right here, little by little. As I said before, elections have consequences. And when Donald Trump was selected to be president of the United States by the electoral Congress, we then ended up with what we have today, the Supreme Court justices. you think they're going to stop with overturning abortion rights, then you are kidding yourselves.